The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustomes.com. Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a duo Just an old second hand man He'll buy your old days from you He will take every sorrow Of the day that is through And he'll bring you tomorrow Hello and welcome to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. And this week, Cold Wars. And this week we've forgotten who we are. Yeah, hang on a minute, oh, what the hell, you've broken the, you're broken the schedule, man. <laughs> I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And you join us for a special edition. Hmm. Yes, this is a kind of time-sensitive thing, so we're breaking our normal release schedule and getting this out, well, soon. Well, I say soon. I mean, that's soon from the time of recording. Obviously, as you're listening to this now, it's not soon for you. It's now for you. and It'll already, It will already be out when you hear this. So, we're talking about the Cold War. Specifically, yes. the Kickstarter for... Scott will tell us. World War Cthulhu Cold War. And Scott, you're intimately involved in this as line editor for Cubicle 7's World War Cthulhu? I am, yes. Okay. Yes, yes, I, I'm not exactly a disinterested party here, so this is slightly self-serving, but on the bright side, it means that I might actually know something about what I'm talking about. You're breaking the habit of a lifetime, man, what the hell? <laughs> we'll, we'll take our chances with that one, but I certainly don't know much about it, uh, so I'm going to take the role of the audience and ask you some questions about it, as we did with the World War Cthulhu episode that we did some months ago now. Okay, and I'm going to take the, the the role of an interrogation subject and, and be as evasive as possible. And you, Matt? I'll try and hold him down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like a standard recording, actually. <laughs> as this is a special episode and not part of our regular release schedule, uh, we will uh, skip some of the special features like the Lovecrafting Word of the Week, I'm afraid. Uh, but if you come back next week for what should be episode 57... Then, yeah, we'll have a word for you then. World War Cthulhu, so far, with the Darkest Hour, has covered World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, the range is looking to cover several different periods, but we're going next into Cold War. Yes, that's right. The, the plan at the moment is that, obviously, we're doing the Cold War books now. The next one, I believe, that we'll be releasing is the World War I setting, uh, which is going to be sometime in the future. Uh, and then... A while after that, we'll be doing World War Three, which, yeah, I won't say much about now, but it's going to be strange. Can you say when it's set? No. no okay. We'll leave that All as right, a surprise, too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and how does the Cold War, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a few decades after uh, World War Two. When is it set and how does it relate to The Darkest Hour? The core book that we're putting out uh, is going to be set during the 1970s. Um, the, the the general plan at the moment we've got is that we will look at uh, doing material that's set during the whole scope of the Cold War, which obviously started in the late 40s, went through to uh, the end of the 80s, or 1990. Uh, but, you know, this, this core book that we're doing initially is just covering the 1970s. And 
it builds upon the continuity that's been built up uh, in The Darkest Hour. So, I mean, this is fairly important to us. I mean, we've set uh, certain things up in The Darkest Hour, like the existence of this secretive network, Network N, uh, that uses the machineries of British intelligence, uh, in, in the case of The Darkest Hour, the, the Special Operations Executive, and uses that machinery to combat the mythos. So we set up a timeline that builds upon these events and brings it up to the 1970s and the real-world events that took place then. Okay, so what has become of N and, um, well, N's network? Obviously, the Special Operations Executive ceased to exist in 1946. After the Second World War, its purpose you know, was done. It did... It did actually do at least one operation after the end of the war, uh, but you know, its purpose was expired. Now that we've moved forward the 25 to 35 years covering the scope of the 1970s, N is still around. He's still active in the British intelligence community, sort of. He's very much yesterday's man. He's been sidelined. Well, not sidelined, but he's been promoted to a position where you know he is... He's more of a figurehead and less of an active participant. So promotion in inverted commas. Yes. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are still people who were members of Network N during the Second World War who are active um, in intelligence communities in uh, the UK and the US and around the world. And the Special Operations Executive was quite an international organisation. Um, the vast majority of its members weren't actually British. And it also had ties with the foundation of the OSS, uh, which was the uh, American uh, intelligence organisation that ended up becoming the CIA, or at least uh, sort of providing the groundwork for the CIA. Uh, so these people, you know, who have all been, you know, touched by N's network in some, you know, to some degree, are all still out there uh, in the rest of the world in these intelligence communities, and all still keeping the fight alive. So what has the fight become now? Because, I mean, they were all unified in uh, the Second World War. Um, so when you're saying they're keeping the fight alive, the fight has now become the fight against communist Russia. Well, it it is and it isn't. I the fight that I'm talking about is the Network N fight against your know, N's other enemy. Against okay, the so against the mythos. Yeah, but obviously, this is a more subtle fight, in that you know, for a start, a lot of people aren't going to believe it. Secondly, you know, N being a fairly secretive sort of chap anyway, doesn't want to go around advertising the existence of these things to anyone he doesn't have to. So, you know, Network N in its current form uh, is still a fairly shadowy organisation, in fact, probably more so than it was during the Second World War. Um, and what's made it kind of more complicated is at least it, it was semi-official during the Second World War, now it's not really that there's an almost conspiratorial aspect to it, that you know, these people are operating within their intelligence services, doing the same thing as N always did, which is trying to divert resources from missions, trying to act, divert um, you know, active participants on various covert operations uh, so that they can uh, carry out his mythos-based missions. So you're keeping the duality of having a 
normal espionage mission and then a mythos threat to combat as well. Yeah, this was probably the most important thing to me when I was putting this together, that yeah, I really love that dual mission aspect in The Darkest Hour, and I think that's that's one of the strongest parts of it, and I really wanted to make sure that that was still there uh, in the Cold War books. Uh, but it's slightly different in this, in, in a number of ways. Um, the, the most important one is that... Uh, we wanted to sort of muddy the waters a little bit. Uh, so in in The Darkest Hour, you, you very much have your Mythos mission, you have your uh, military mission, and the two of them, while they tend to take place in the, in the same arena, they take place you know, physically in the same area, they don't tend to overlap. In fact, you know, we've actually got that advice in the book, you, know, you don't mix the two up, it's going to make things too dangerous uh, for, uh, for the player characters. Because there's a big differentiation made between the Mythos forces and the Axis forces in, in the Darkest Hour. Yes. And there still is that differentiation. We, we don't want uh, to portray a world here where you know, the KGB, uh, you know, for example, trying to summon Cthulhu to nuke London or something like that. It's not that kind of thing. I mean, the, the intelligence you know, wars that are going on across the world are still the intelligence wars that we think of from 1970s history. There are no big mythos conspiracies weaving their way through. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the Cold War is scary enough without having to do that. But coincidentally, you know, we still have the pockets of mythos activities. We have cults running around and so on. But I mean, where things get a bit more muddied is there might be a bit more bleed over between the two. You know, certainly on the ground level stuff. In the, the, you know, the shadowy world of spies and the shadowy world of cultists, you know, probably in, in some places draw on the same resources. Um, you know, they, they, they're both people who live in the shadows. They both operate, operate in criminal ways. Um, and, you know, someone who is hired to do a job, you know, perhaps as a, you know, a bit of breaking and entering or something like that, you know, may not be entirely sure whether they're working for an intelligence agency, whether they're working for a cult, whether they're working for a criminal organisation, you know, and the lines between them might get a bit blurred sometimes. Now, you mentioned the main focus of the setting initially will be the 70s, so period 1970 to 1979. Um, on the surface, for those who uh, know a little bit about the real the real world history there, that would be pretty much smack bang in the middle of the detente period. Yes. So why did you choose the 70s above any other period in the Cold War when tensions were higher? Uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, the 70s, there were certainly fewer direct actions going on than there were, say, in the 60s and 50s. But at the same time, there was a lot of more questionable stuff going on. Um, and more importantly, this was a time, you know, particularly for UK and US intelligence, when both the, when the intelligence services on both sides of the Atlantic were in chaos. Um, really, they they were suffering quite badly, because um, in the aftermath of Watergate, you had the Church Commission, uh, who were looking at trying to declaw the CIA in a lot of ways, or at least reel in their excesses. Because the CIA, I mean, as well as their involvement in Watergate, had been going around toppling governments for the last you know, 20, 25 years uh, and, and doing you know, some really quite horrible things. Um, in uh, the case of uh, the UK, uh, by the middle of the 70s, we had a Labour government in power uh, that wasn't a big fan of the intelligence community. Uh, they didn't have a lot of faith in SIS uh, or MI5. 
And uh, also, you know, the intelligence services were reeling after, you know, admittedly it had been some time, but all the revelations about the Cambridge Five. Uh, and, and there wasn't a lot of trust in the intelligence services. And so, yeah, I mean, personally, I thought this was a really interesting backdrop in which to try playing members of the intelligence services, uh, playing at a time when you're, you know, on top of, you know, fighting the Cold War, fighting against the mythos under the radar, you're also pretty much fighting for credibility and fighting for the survival of your service. The other really interesting thing that was going on during the 1970s uh, was there was this... I was about to say explosion, but that's perhaps a poor choice of words. It wasn't meant to be a pun. But there was this huge growth in international terrorism. There were terrorist groups uh, cropping up all over the world. Um, a lot of them with links between them, you know, quite unlikely links uh, in terms of providing guns and money and, and you know, training and so on to each other. So you had links between, you know, say, Palestinian terrorists and uh, Libya and Germany and the Red Brigades in Italy and, and the IRA, um, you know, and you know, Peruvian guerrillas and uh, perhaps even, you know, some domestic groups in the US. And, you know, it, it's... This kind of rich web of conspiracy, uh, of um, kind of passionate, but you know, in some cases quite often incompetent, um, but but still very dangerous uh, people, uh, doing you know everything from you know bank robberies and you know small scale kidnappings and assassinations uh, to aircraft hijackings. And this, this stuff was going on the whole time during the 1970s, and the intelligence services were very involved with this. Um, in most cases, trying to fight it, but in some cases, actively backing it as well. Just in case you wanted any more moral dilemmas in there. <laughs> I, I, and, yeah, it's this moral ambiguity, um, or at least this confusion about, you know, who's backing whom and who's involved with, with you know, which particular games that are going on. This, again, I think is absolutely fantastic for a Call of Cthulhu game, because it, it means you've got this high degree of unsureness and paranoia before you even start introducing mythos elements. So when you're getting missions, you won't necessarily know who they're coming from? Well, Depending you on will. the setup of your uh, game, perhaps. Yeah, but I mean, you'll know who's briefing you. You'll know that it's a member of you know SIS or the CIA, or whichever intelligence service you're you're working with. But at the same time, you won't necessarily know that the information they're being fed is right. They might be being given duff gen in the first place to try to steer you off to doing something else. They might have a completely different motive than the one they're telling you about. And we've got N and his network, but we've also got another figure coming to play here. We have. Uh, this introduces a sort of Cold War element on the Mythos side of things as well. We've got this, this character we created primarily for the World War I game, uh, who hasn't appeared in the World War II stuff yet, but you know, we're going to rectify that over time who is this figure that cropped up in, you know, in the intelligence services during the First World War called H. Now, H uh, recruited N in the first place, uh, got N set on his, his path of dealing with the mythos in whatever role that may be. But H has got her own agenda. Um, she... Well, apart from anything else, by the time the 1970s come around, no one has seen her physically possibly even since the First World War, if, if even then, she exists in dreams. 
Uh, it's quite possible she only ever existed in dreams, but her, she has um, her own view as to what is best for humanity, what is best for the survival of the human race over time, which is entirely different to N's view of how to deal with the mythos and what the priorities are, which means the two of them even though they're ostensibly on the same side, have got huge ideological differences that are driving them to sort of play games against each other. And you know, with H being able to manipulate people through dreams, you even end up with sort of Manchurian candidate scenarios at times, where people have got kind of thoughts and missions and so on implanted in their heads that they believe you know, were always there. But, you know, perhaps they only dreamt. So, so are we seeing the dawning of a World War Cthulhu metaplot here? <laughs> it's I, I I think of it less as metaplot and more as continuity. It's part of the canvas and part of the setting rather than there necessarily being a plot line behind it that says X happens yeah. at this point, Y happens here. Exactly. Yeah, we, we we're just setting up some toys for the keeper to play with. And also from what I've read from the Kickstarter page that H might have a very similar approach that you've written for N in that the Keeper has multiple explanations as to what H could be. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, H may just be a human dreamer uh, who's been around for some time, or they, you know, she, she may end up actually being an avatar of Hypnos, for all we know. She, you know, we, we really don't know. Or at least the Keeper will, but, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're putting options in there, so... Yeah, you can tailor this to your campaign. Are H and N likely to feature in the scenarios? A lot of them, I mean, occasionally they might, but not regularly, right? No, I mean, N personally is going to feature in fewer scenarios, obviously, than during the Second World War, because by this stage, you know, he's going to be in his 70s. Uh, he's, uh, he's in the House of Lords at this stage. Uh, he's, he's not... He's not actively involved in the fight, mm -hmm. but he is there kind of pulling strings from behind the scenes. A bit of a slacker. Christopher Lee was recording rock albums in his 90s. Why the hell can't a spy master do stuff in his 70s? <laughs> of course, looking back at the 70s as well, this is the kind of the birth of the well, spy mania kind of echoes back from the 60s as well. But this is where you get a lot more varied, different approaches to the spy thriller genre. Um, how would you pitch... Uh, World War Cthulhu Cold War in terms of relating it to the works of other authors out there? That's not actually as simple a question as it sounds because there are a lot of influences and there are a lot of potential tones on this. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of the influences on this are historical ones, but in terms of fiction, I suppose, you know, for me, the single biggest influences on this are going to be uh, The Sandbaggers. If you've never seen the TV series The Sandbaggers, um, you... And, and you have any you know, interest in spy fiction at all, uh, you really should do something about filling in that gap. It was a British TV series that was made, uh, I think it started in 77 and finished in 1980, uh, that um, it revolves around the special operations section of, of SIS. Um, I know the, pretty much everything in it is fairly heavily fictionalised. Uh, it's, it's a bit more, not necessarily action-packed, but... Um, it involves a bit more direct action than SIS was actually doing at the time. Uh, the, the the chap who wrote it, Ian McIntosh, uh, was actually involved with the intelligence services, and um, he he ended up kind of drawing a lot of inspiration actually from the way the CIA operated and applying that to SIS. 
But uh, he created the, the series that is very credible. It's about sort of the bureaucracy and the moral grey areas uh, that are involved in, in intelligence. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good combination of thriller, of really cynical political nastiness, um, and just unrelenting British grimness. I, I love every second of it. Um, I mean, that, that, that and uh, the works of John le Carre are probably the things that are most in my mind uh, when, I'm, when I'm thinking about this. And on the American side of things, I mean, this was a great period for paranoid spy thrillers and political thrillers, you know, partly born out of what was really going on uh, in, you know, particularly with the CIA. Um, I mean, you know, if you want to see uh, film representations of um, kind of CIA wrongdoings at the time, um, you know, The Falcon and the Snowman's a good choice, All the President's Men, uh, Missing... Uh, you know, they, these things really kind of help set the tone there. Yeah, it's your favourite of mine from that period as well, Parallax View. Yes. So wonderfully bleak. Oh, and Three Days of the Condor as well. <laughs> Those are the fictional sources. How based in reality is the, is the game and the scenarios, would you say? We're trying to make this as, as real as possible, but there are certain complications that come in here uh, which we didn't have with the darkest hour and with the darkest hour I mean for a start you had the special operations executive um, which is a you know was a real world organization that did very kind of <laughs> it, it performed actions which you know are absolutely perfect for for role-playing games um, it was small groups of five people going off behind enemy lines doing covert actions involving blowing things up, assassinating people. It was, uh, yeah, it was role-playing groups. Pretty much. And, yeah. Yeah, I, and not only that, but, you know, because so much time has passed, their activities are very well documented now. We know a lot about what they did, about, you know, the, the missions they performed, the people involved, the tools and weapons they used and so on. Also, there was a war, there was an actual world war on so it was to be expected there was lots of direct action and combat and you know you know action um scenes whereas i'm feeling that there's less direct action in in the cold war the, yes mostly I'm... i mean compare it with you know if i watch uh, tinker taylor soldier spy i mean as good a film as it is you know the, the more recent one with um, toby jones there's not a great deal of action in it no and and that's not to say that you know th th there isn't going to be any action in this. Uh, quite the opposite. I mean, th th there's plenty of there's plenty of conflict going on throughout the 1970s that do, you know does require direct physical action, but it's a lot murkier than that. There's all sorts of counter-terrorist action. There's proxy wars being fought all over the place. You know, there's the tail end of what's going on in Vietnam and the spillover effects you know uh, across Southeast Asia. Uh, there's, you know, cat and mouse games going on within, you know, intelligence and counterintelligence, you know, maybe the occasional assassination going on there. Uh, there's coups, uh, you know, toppling, um, you know, unsuitable regimes. And that's uh, not to say that, um, you know, phys physical action scenes are essential for a role-playing game, uh, anything but, but I find it harder to envisage running a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy role-playing game. 
Yeah, I mean, this this is why I probably mentioned the sandbaggers up front more than anything else because I mean, a lot of that is is a conceit as well. As I mentioned, you know, when I was talking about that, you know, there wasn't really at that time a special operations um, section in SIS. So you know, the the guy who wrote the sandbaggers, you know, invented this wholesale to provide. Um, a mechanism whereby his characters could do interesting things like that, and yeah, you know, to some extent we're we're doing something similar. I mean, it's a bit different with the American side of things because you know there, there was a lot more of that directly with the CIA, uh, but with SIS, you know, we are having to you know create a bit of fiction there, but at the same time. By grounding it so much in the you know the events and the politics of what was actually going on in the 1970s, I don't feel too guilty about that, because it just provides an excuse for the investigators to interact with these things that were really happening. See, personally, that's one of the things that quite attracts me to this um, the setting, in that you've got more of a tread softly approach to things. That there is more of an emphasis on subversion. Um, investigative action and such. The things like your, your Tinker Tailor classic Mole Hunt, for example, that's a great premise for an investigative plotline. Yeah. So it doesn't have to focus on action. Well, you know, you know my opinions on such things anyway. <laughs> um, they've been stated enough times. So no, this this is definitely more my kind of alley would be going down the, the Tinker Tailor route. Oh yeah, and and I mean, even go back to something like the Sandbaggers. There are probably you know in the entire run of the series two or three you know um, gunfights in that. It's not a violent series. What you've said about the Cold War setting sounds intriguing and interesting. I'm having a harder job seeing, as a keeper, what I'm going to do with it. So tell us, Scott, what, <laughs> how, how is a session going to look? Uh, what's, the, what's a Cold War mission going to look like? Well, it's got to be quite varied. I mean, some of them may involve you know the kind of more gentle cat and mouse or counter espionage things that matt was talking about there you know uh, trying to you know uncover moles or you know check uh, the veracity of defectors walk-ins um and uh, yeah, that, that kind of more investigative side of things uh some of them may involve you know infiltration you know both uh you know against the eastern bloc or you know, within terrorist groups or extremist groups across the world uh some of them may involve more direct action uh so you know, again this probably you know involves more uh, getting involved with some of the actions that are going on proxy wars or actions that are going on with with extremist groups but you know it it, it could boil down to you know your job is you know to um you know facilitate the overthrow of you know the 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 government of some small central american nation um you know, or you know, or to carry out a political assassination or two. You are responsible for putting that explosive in uh, Castro's cigar. <laughs> <laughs> and you rolled a double zero. <laughs> Wanted to do something to his beard as well. Yeah, they, well, they, Wanted they to a, try and shave it or something. Well, they, no, they, one of them was. Uh, it was a variant of the exploding cigar one. There was a uh, an incendiary cigar that was supposed to burn his beard off. Um, I, the, my my two favourites. Uh, I yeah. I don't know. 
I mean, some of this may be apocryphal, but uh, yeah, the, these were two CIA missions I remember reading about ages ago in relation to Castro, which I just love. One of them uh, involved trying to, because he's he's uh, was apparently quite a keen uh, snorkeler or scuba diver. Uh, one of them involved trying to rig up a fake giant clam uh, that would yeah you know, th- th- that would trap him underwater and drown him. <laughs> Uh, but the, the 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 absolute favorite one that I, I heard about uh, was uh, the CIA's plan to stage the second coming in Cuba, <laughs> um, whereby apparently someone had the bright idea that they wanted to have an American warship bring Jesus into a harbor in Cuba in front full view of all the people there <laughs> and inspire a religious revolution against Castro. I, I think this idea was shot down pretty quickly as being insane. Wow. But think of Neafla Tap having a ball with that kind of concept, standing <laughs> on the front of an American warship. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd I, I play that scenario. <laughs> but these are great examples of things that if you put them in games, people would roll their eyes and say, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I, and that's the thing. I mean, there are so many examples of real things that happened during the Cold War that you, you couldn't you couldn't necessarily put in fiction because they are just too unbelievable. Yeah, one that really boggles my imagination is Aldrich Ames, um, uh, the the American double agent uh, in the nineteen eighties, uh, who, I mean, he 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 was a CIA operative, who basically sold secrets to the uh, the KGB over quite a long period of time, um, and he did it entirely for money. He, he had a wife with very expensive tastes, and um, the KGB paid him handsomely for the secrets that that he picked up, but. His initial contact was that he basically walked directly up to the Soviet embassy in, you know, in full view of everyone, walked inside and said, you know, I, I want to talk to, you know, whoever you know, represents the KGB on site. I want to make a deal with them uh, and did that and, you know, set everything up, you know, just that blatantly. Mm. And, 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 you know, despite coming under suspicion over and over again, managed to operate very successfully as a double agent for oh, it was at least five years. Probably longer than that from memory. Yeah. I remember one of his other ballsy stunts was that he effectively walked out with a whole load of top secret folders in a carry bag. Yeah. And that no, uh, no one checked him because, oh, you work for us, it's all fine. Well, and, and and Kim Philby got away with God knows how many close calls. Uh, in his case, you know, just because no one actually wanted to believe he was a Soviet spy, you know, if, uh, partly because you know it'd be so damaging if if it would confirm that he was, and partly because you know of uh, the old boy network. You know, he's, he, he's he's one of us. You know, he can't possibly be a Soviet. Well, he he did out uh, David Cornwell, otherwise known as John Le Carre. Oh right. Yeah, he was when he was stationed in Istanbul. He um, he one of the people he gave away was Cornwell. Ha. Huh. Ah. That's what led to his. Uh, I think his quote was a rather, uh, rather uninteresting period in the intelligence services before he decided to become a writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Philby got around. I mean, he was a friend of Graham Greene's as well, and he was also a member of the SOE. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next, he is featured in the uh, Darkest Hour core book. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's even stats from him in the SOE handbook. Mm-hmm. Know thine enemy. <laughs> now let's take a look at what a Cold War scenario might look like. So we're going to have a go at brainstorming one right here and now. Off the cuff. 
off the cuff, improvising, using the notes Scott sent us earlier. <laughs> Am I the only one who put my notes down and was just going to think completely out yeah. of the box? Yeah, go, go on, Matt. Pitch a scenario to us. Okay, things about the Cold War. Um, fact, things that could spark why uh, an intelligence service might become interested. We've mentioned about defectors, we've mentioned about moles, so let's skip any anything like that. Um, what other core assets a government might have that might take an interest in that maybe have gone missing or the thing have been turned? Think, what, what, what would you say? I'm trying to avoid saying nuclear scientist. <laughs> <laughs> um... Well, I mean, we don't necessarily have to go for this. Ooh, this one. Oh, go on. Yeah. No, no. Um, one thing that we didn't touch upon during the um, either literary or TV inspirations uh, was one of my favourites from the sixties, The Prisoner. Mm-hmm. So, what happens if a, uh, what happens if an ex um, agent has gone missing? They know so a lot. Just of somebody's gone. They've disappeared. Yeah. Well, so they, they, they know a lot of things. Have they been um, Have they been taken up by the Soviets? Have they been taken up by another party? What What's happened to them? At the minute, all you know is this piece has been removed from the board. Where's it gone? How much did it know? How compromising is it that this, inf- so one of this ours? information? Potentially. Or it could be even be another intelligence agency that comes to you saying, hey, CIA, we've lost a guy. Would you like to investigate? Maybe mm-hmm. even the SIS jumping in to try and build some bridges to try and help out to in- uh, develop into um, interbody relationships. Okay. And it becomes a whole lot more complicated if that person was actually a member of of ENDS network as well. Mm -hmm. Because then, you know, you've got the additional complication that they might not just, you know, have have defected, you know, they might not have just been a double agent for the Soviets or something like that. They could actually have, you know, gone mad or been corrupted by a cult. They could be under some kind of magical influence. So not so much turned by the enemy as turned, well, depending which enemy we're talking about, not turned to the Soviets, but turned to the mythos, some, uh, either some cult or, you know, just out of their own um, singular endeavours. Yeah, I mean, let's let's kind of build on this slightly. So you've got an agent who perhaps, you know, instead of disappearing, has just started acting strangely. Mm -hmm. You know, perhaps, you know, they've been operating out of, you know, um, you know, operating out of an SIS station, you know, say, you know, in West Germany, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere, that, you know, they, they've got specific missions or specific work they've been, you know, supposed to be doing, uh, but they've been disappearing for lengths of time, you know, they've been seen uh, in the company of, you know, people who aren't their normal contacts. They've turned up in conjunction with, you know, other investigations that have been going on that perhaps, you know, you've got, um, you know, someone from uh, Section 46 who's gone over, uh, who is, you know, working on something in particular and has stumbled across uh, this, you know, this um, operative in a situation in which they really shouldn't be involved. You know, what are they doing there? So, I mean, immediately you're faced with, you know, the questions. Do you confront them directly and try to interrogate them? Do you follow them around, you know, try to work out what they're up to? Do you investigate their background? Um, You know, try to see what links there might be there. So the mission is to go and... We know where this guy's been spotted... Um, where he was last spotted, go and see what he's up to. Yeah, basically. So, see whether he is a security risk. See why he's behaving so strangely. Um, you know, see you know if if he has either you know turned and is working for the Soviets or whether he's you know working with the cult. And 
me as a keeper, I'd throw in the added complication there that N would be concerned that the more visibility that this agent has, the more that the, um, someone from like SIS Oversight might look into them and go, hang on a minute, what the hell is he looking at? And suddenly uncover Section 46. Yeah. In fact, we haven't actually said, you've mentioned Section 46 now, we didn't mention them earlier. So Section 46 is basically the continuation of ENDS Network in the modern day. So in the setting that we've, we've created, Section 46 was proposed immediately after the war by N as a way of continuing his operations within SIS. Uh, but um, the inspiration for it is uh, something called the Five Eyes Network, uh, which was basically an agreement, oh sorry, the Five Eyes Agreement, which was basically an agreement between the security services of um, Canada, uh, the US, New Zealand, Australia and the UK to share signals intelligence. But it was basically you know, a, a, a group uh, that operated across the security services of all five. Uh, and so, you know, Section 46 was meant to be something like this, except, you know, as a shell, basically, to encompass uh, ends real operations. I was thinking particularly about why they're called Section 46, and it struck me earlier, 1946, when the SOE disbanded, and that then this just so happens to be a continuation thereof. Yes, yeah, and it sort of follows the, the name convention that uh, SIS sections had at the time. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, the thing is that, you know, Section 46 never actually happened. It doesn't exist. Not that we know of. We don't have appropriate security clearance for that, citizen. Exactly. Still into paranoia now. <laughs> <laughs> there was the word, the P word was used as a major yeah, yeah, influence. Yeah, in yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> so, so far with our scenario, we've got this idea that we're looking into this guy that's um, maybe turned. What's our premise for him then? What's the scenario? Because at the moment we've just got what we're presenting to the players, not what's actually going on. I'm thinking in a circumstance like that, I would, again, being a, somewhat the, the keeper that I am, would present different reasons as to why he's acting the way he is. So that then the keeper has a choice of he's doing this, that or the other. So maybe he's been to, uh, maybe he's started to stumble across another agent that's potentially aligned with H. Maybe he's actually sided with H, that he has a certain uh, conflict of interest now. Or maybe it's just he's seen too much mythos shit and has gone off the deep end. All right, so we got this agent who potentially has had some kind of breakdown because of sanity loss, has perhaps ended up in, um, you know, a, in a mental hospital very briefly, or, or at least a hospital in in Germany. You know, he's been picked up off the street because he's been acting strangely. There, you know, someone who is associated with the Stasi uh, has. You know, it has worked out that this is actually a member of SIS, you know, you know, and is seeing this as an opportunity to take advantage of his weakness and turn him and so on, without realising what actually drove him to that. So when you say a military, uh, when you say a hospital, that could well be a military um, installation or something like that. Well, if he's if he's got some sort of you know, rank among one of the um, agencies. It could be, or it could just be the fact that, you know, he completely lost it while out on the street and before anyone has had a chance from, you know, the, from British intelligence or, or NATO or anyone like that to kind of work out uh, that, you know, this guy doesn't belong in a public hospital. That's where he's ended up, you know, and before anyone has had a chance to, to get him out from there, that's when the Stasi have taken advantage. Yeah, maybe he's even a deep um, that he's got a certain degree of deep cover that transferring him to a um, let's say a military hospital could blow his cover. So maybe they don't want to step in, and that would just complicate things even further. 
So they run the risk of that now he's completely exposed and at the um, at the whim of anyone that can get uh, get walking through the front door. <clears throat> and if you want some reason for why uh, he's gone insane and why you know he's suddenly become so dangerous to be around. Perhaps it is something like, um, you know, he was looking into a cult, someone has slipped him a dose of the plutonium drug, his mind has gone back in time, he's seen the Hound of Tindalos and he now realises he's being stalked. Yep, and that Hound is now picking off people in the hospital. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Obviously, no one in the regular intelligence services realises that's what's going on. When people start dying, then you know, the, the Stasi obviously think SIS is responsible for it. SIS think that it's the Stasi involved. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you know, there's, there's this guy who's just sitting there screaming about corners. <laughs> and anyone with any degree of, uh, any modicum of mythos knowledge, when they realise, oh shit, we can't stop this thing... <laughs> Do you, um, do you then end up going down the route of, well, if we just kill him, the hound will go away? And then how would you cover up killing one of your own? Yeah, and and also hope that it actually works that way. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't yeah. then look at you for then destroying its plaything. Yes, and, and, and hope that he was the only one who took the drug. Mm-hmm. Or that he gets picked up by the enemy faction, because that will cause them a lot of trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they take him home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 You've got. You've got to do a bust out of someone who has been taken to a Stasi safe house and is being stalked by a hound of Tindalos, and then do an airdrop from them into the Kremlin to let a hound of Tindalos run around the Red Square. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe taking it to the nth degree. Yeah, but just, yeah. Uh, I, 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 can, I can see N taking a dim view of that approach. That's a tactical nuclear hound that works quite well. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean that that's that's the fairly basic bare bones of a scenario, and obviously you've fleshed out with a lot more in the background and the people he was involved with, and put a few red herrings in and stuff like that. But that that could be the core of of something quite solid. And it uses the hound of Tindal, so it always gets my folk. <laughs> <laughs> so, as an avid fan of Kickstarter, um, and someone who I think was back at number six on the project when it launched. You were that slow, Matt. I can't believe it. I blame the internet connection at work. And also searching through all the material to say, how much do I have to add on to it before I get everything that the Kickstarter offers? It's about £149, kids, if you're uh, looking at that. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Do you want to fill us in on some of the technical bits on the Kickstarter? Obviously, the main thing that we're, we're funding with this campaign is the core book itself. Uh, so this this is the uh, the Bobok Thulu Cold War book, which is the equivalent for this time period of the Darkest Hour uh, for the Second World War. This is going to be you know, a big, solid hardback book um, that is going to provide you know the setting information, character creation, uh, a fairly sizable uh, kind of sandbox scenario, uh, and um, general information about what was going on in the time period, different theatres of operations and sample missions uh, that the uh, the player characters can get involved in. There is going to be the Section Forty Six Operations Manual. Sort of the modern-day uh, tradecraft and special operations version of the SOE handbook that we did for the Darkest Hour setting. So this is going to provide you know additional options uh, for player characters, um, advice about how to use uh, special tactics and tradecraft in relation to the mythos. So that not necessarily more for players, but a book that is well 
useful for the keeper, but also for, for players or yes. the player's handbook. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. That's, yeah. that's the idea. I love it that Paul got interested there when the, the thought of the 1970s being the modern day sourcebook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then we have another sourcebook, which is called Our American Cousins. So uh, the main focus of the first book, uh, the core book, is going to be SIS. Uh, but I, that's not to say that we won't cover the other intelligence services, but you know, that, that, that's going to be the main focus. Uh, the, uh, the Our American Cousins book you know, provides additional options for playing characters who are affiliated with American intelligence agencies, particularly the, the CIA, but also the FBI, um, and you know, any number of domestic intelligence agencies. Uh, it also provides setting information about the different intelligence theatres of interest to uh, American characters and another couple of scenarios. We have a book of scenarios, standalone scenarios called Covert Actions. Uh, now, at the time of recording, I don't know how many scenarios are going to be in there because this may or may not be affected by stretch goals. Uh, so it could end up being a fairly sizable book. And finally, we have the campaign, which is called Yesterday's Men, uh, which yeah, focuses around a, a sort of stay-behind operation uh, from the tail end of the Second World War that stayed in East Germany, uh, is associated with Network N, and has been pretty much forgotten about by the time the 1970s come around. They've been compromised, they've got involved with um, you know, the Stasi, with various extremist movements, with cults, etc. And it's basically a way of uh, plugging the player characters into the absolute chaos that was going on in Europe at the time. The way the Kickstarter is set up, what you purchase is quite customizable. So if you just want to get the core book, for example, you can do that. If you want to get all the books in the limited edition, you can do that. There are different pledge levels, you know, but by by handling add-ons, you can get, you know, which whichever physical books you want, you can get uh, PDFs or a mixture of books and PDFs. Uh, you know, whatever suits you. And if you're not sure how to do that, they should email you directly, Scott. Is that right? <laughs> it's actually explained really well on the Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, but nobody reads all that. Let's ask you. <laughs> you don't mind, right? Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, if, if, if you know my email address and you're willing to put up with the delay there, and yeah, if, <laughs> if you somehow believe that that is going to be easier than looking at the Kickstarter site, you're quite it's welcome the internet, to Scott, of course they will. <laughs> Playing Devil's Advocate... If I decide not to back the Kickstarter and decide to keep my money and wait for it to come up on Amazon at a reduced cost, Heathen. why shouldn't I do that, Scott? <laughs> well, I, I, apart from the moral imperative of making sure that you know, I, I, I keep my job, um, then there's... <laughs> I give you food parcels. What more do you want? <laughs> uh, there are a couple of things. Um, well, there's the fact that you get a you know, the chance to buy the limited edition uh, of the core book. So this is going to be an embossed uh, foil stamped edition, uh, which I've seen mock-ups of it and it, it looks really quite shiny. Um, I'm tempted at pledging to get a second copy of that, to be fair. <laughs> it, it is only, I believe, going to be available through the Kickstarter. That's so. why I'm planning on getting a second copy. <laughs> Uh, and the other thing at this stage is our next stretch goal that's coming up at the time of recording, which by the time this comes out I hope will be funded, uh, is a, a collection of handouts. Uh, so these are going to be uh, documents uh, and you know, other bits of ephemera uh, that you can use as, as handouts and props during your games. Oh, that's cool. It's nice to get things that you know, you're not going to be able to get afterwards. Yeah, definitely. 
they, they did something similar with the uh, Cthulhu Britannica London box set. Yes, yes, you you and I did most of those, Matt. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I remember having seen the PDFs of those being back. Well, uh, having back we will do it. I mean, I've seen the PDFs of them, is yeah. what I meant. Oh, yeah, I've seen the physical things. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yes, I saw them at UK Games Expo. They, yeah. Oh, gosh. They, they're, they're, they're beautifully printed. I mean, they're on quite heavy card stock and, yeah, absolutely gorgeous. Mm. The Kickstarter campaign has been very successful so far. We were funded within the first three hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely happening. Uh, we've, we've chewed through a number of stretch goals so far. Um, obviously, because, you know, this may take a few days to get out, I don't know what the current stretch goals will be. So much for your allegiance with Yogg Sothoth. It fails you now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, we, after all the talk we've just had of Hounds of Tindalos, I don't think that I want to look through time any more than I have to. <laughs> okay, folks, so that's it for tonight. Join us in a week or so for our second part of The Shadow Out of Time. Yes, which, which won't be a 45-minute sales pitch. No. Same podcast place, same podcast channel. Until then, it's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.